Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Black History Month and Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 18th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell. Bloom Magazine is a bi-monthly culture and lifestyle magazine published in Bloomington. Founded in 2005, by editor and publisher Malcolm Abrams. Bloom is an independent and free magazine which highlights and promotes inclusion and diversity in every issue. Within its pages, peppered with highly quality photographs, readers learn about Bloomington's local community, the arts, entertainment, food and wine, fashion and shopping, health and fitness, business and finance. And it has come to our understanding that this month of February marks their, their 100th publication. And this is an achievement for an individual who has a lengthy career in news and print. Abrams worked for Rupert Murdoch as vice president and, and editorial director of Murdoch Business Magazines, where he was responsible for 20 publications, including Travel Weekly, meetings and conventions, and business and commercial aviation. Abrams is the co-author of Future Stuff and its sequel, More Future Stuff, both published by Viking Penguin. Because of his commitment to keeping the content in Bloom Magazine inclusive, while resisting pressures from some segments to remain mute on some issues, Abrams has occasionally been the target of hate Nevertheless, it is because of his thought-provoking, relevant editorial content about local folks, issues, and concerns, he is considered as one who walks the talk. Malcolm Abrams joins us now for a revealing, revealing I'm sorry, conversation on his passion to publish Bloom and why he is driven to showcase the diversity and richness that is Bloomington. Malcolm Abrams, welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, Malcolm. You know, uh, from your introduction, sounded a little scary. I I, want to say, first of all, that the huge majority of this community is really good, I think, welcomes diversity. Uh, Believe me, after living in New York City for 30 years, I find so much kindness and goodness in this community. But, you know, no place is perfect. And uh, there have been occasions. It's not so much that people specifically uh, cause us harm or try to cause us harm because of diversity. Um, They they may not say that. You know, a a little while ago, we had a 20-pound rock uh, thrown through the window behind me here. And there was no note that said, uh, we don't like your... Uh, comments on diversity, Um, but this is usually what it would be about. 
a few years ago, we had, uh, I, he was a lawyer. I don't know if he was still a lawyer in good standing, but he called all of our advertisers and told us, told them not to advertise in the magazine anymore because we were supporting a terrorist organization. That terrorist organization was Black Lives Matter. Um, in the past year, we had another, uh, uh, an email that went out to, uh, a, not an email and a calls that went out to our advertisers from an unnamed group of concerned citizens who claimed I was a globalist, a socialist, and anti-Christian and encouraged them not to advertise in the magazine. So that's some of what we've endured. I also get, you know, a certain amount of mail usually comes snail mail. So there's no return address and they don't sign it. And there's been uh, some racist sentiments in there, some anti-Semitic sentiments in there. But this isn't like I get one every day, but I right. do get I do get a few. You know, when I started the magazine, I wanted to keep politics out of the magazine. But I have to say, when our former president started saying that uh, Mexicans were all rapists and murderers and um, his comments after Charlottesville, that there were fine people on both sides, that the neo-Nazis and white supremacists, many of them were fine people, I really felt that I had a responsibility to speak out in my editor's messages. And, uh, you know, specific to local, what was happening locally, what really troubled me was that our senators and representatives in Indiana went along with all of this. You know, it's been said many times that silence is complicity and our representatives were silent when they locked up children. They were silent when there was anti-Asian sentiment expressed from the White House. They were silent through it all, through five years of that man, they were silent. And although they may not have verbally supported everything they did, they never opened up their mouths to say anything against it. And I really felt that anyone who has a podium, had a responsibility to speak out, any kind of podium. And I had that podium. And I know that I lost some advertisers as a result. And there were some nice people who also told me to shut up and just do a cultural lifestyle in nice magazine. But I, 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 I really couldn't do that. I, I'm nothing special, believe me. There are so many people in this town who are good people. If they had a magazine, they'd have done the same thing. And right, so, right. Clarence, that was one question. I just gave you about a 10-minute answer. Sorry. No, well, <laughs> well I'll, I'll follow up. I'll follow up to that because I know Liz is just waiting to ask some questions. <laughs> but I want to get my two in first. Um, one is, if you had not used your magazine as a platform, if you had not spoken your conscience, how could you look at yourself in the mirror and how could you arrest at night? You know, um, somebody asked me if if you could tell your younger self something now, you know, uh, that you could to live by. What I what I would tell younger people is don't do anything you're not going to be proud of in 50 years. 
or 30 years. And I know in my lifetime, when I was younger, I managed to look in the mirror and do a number of things I'm not proud of. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think I would have been a big disappointment to myself if I hadn't used the magazine uh, to right. some things. And, and my second question, and I'm going to step back because Liz is waiting, and she's giving me the look. You know, we're on a Zoom platform. So anyway, um, my first impression of, of Bloom, and, and I kid you not, I, I picked this up off the newsstand. First, I was waiting. I looked at the outer cover. It was glossy, you know, and, and this high-quality photography just jumps right out at you. And it was sort of trendy, upscale. You know, I'm thinking, first of all, Bloomington, you know, this is published in Bloomington. And then the other thing was, boy, how much is this? You know, and I was so impressed. As I thumbed through the pages, I was thinking, wow. I mean, you know, this was impressive. Uh, the, the artistry, the articles um the lifestyle especially the wedding spreads you know all the beautiful brides and, and the grooms all just everyone's beaming and but then i read through further and then you were heading on some really relevant issues so everything that i expressed in the, in the introduction um and that's heartfelt because i i purposely i looked at your bio and it's very impressive but i'm thinking that's not my impression but what i've read today that's my impression and with that, I turn it over to my lovely co-host, Liz Mitchell. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I'm going to pretty much follow uh, everything I had, had thought about. Tell us uh, about your background. Where were you born and about your family? Uh, I was born in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I became an American citizen only just about five years ago. I've been living in this country for a long time on a green card. Uh, but I started to feel if I'm going to be critical uh, of, uh, of the country, I needed to be a part of it. I couldn't just be outside of it. And I was also having some scary uh, instances uh, when I would come back from Canada visiting. Um, a lot of the customs people seemed to be empowered and were really giving me a hard time. Uh, so I grew up in Toronto. Uh, I grew up in a very middle class community right in the heart of the city, not in the suburb. Uh, it was a Jewish community and a very close knit community. Uh, but when I went to high school, that was a different situation. Um, I had been in a class, uh, well, I say for smart kids, believe me, we weren't that smart, but we had to go to a different school. And I got to high school when I was 12 which was uh, way too early. We have five years of high school. I ended up spending six years there and I've never graduated from high school, um, which meant I couldn't get into any university in Canada. So I got into Wayne State University in Detroit, was kind enough to take me. And um, you know, I've always sort of felt like, boy, any club that could have me, there must've been something wrong with it. But, uh, I, I've always been grateful for the opportunity, the chance that they took on me. I studied journalism there. And uh, I'll mention this because I'm on this show. You know, at that time in Toronto, there was no black community. Uh, you could go your probably most of your life and never see a black person in Toronto at that time. This is in the 
This is in the early 60s. And I can remember seeing one on a streetcar as a child and just staring. Uh, we went to Buffalo a lot. And of course, I saw black people there, but I never met one, never knew one. And then suddenly uh, I was living in downtown Detroit uh, in a pretty much all black neighborhood. So uh, that was an experience. And then that really, of course, really widened my worldview. And, you know, uh, at the university, um, you know, Wayne State is sort of a university, basically, for people who live in Detroit. And so, you know, uh, I ended up having a lot of black friends, to my shock, having black professors. And so that was uh, a real change in my life. Um, my father was a wonderful, wonderful man. He was a, a rug salesman. Uh, who had gone to work when he was 14, quitting school to become a bicycle messenger to help support his uh, immigrant family. Um, my mother uh, was one of the few women of her time who graduated from university, the University of Toronto. And uh, she taught at the University of Toronto during World War II and after teaching English as a second language to engineers and doctors and you know, people who had uh, escaped uh, Nazism. And so uh, that was uh, my early life. Uh, I was drawn to journalism, I think, because my grandfather had started uh, a weekly paper in Toronto. My mother, when she was young, had worked for him. And after my brother and I went away to college, she went back and worked for the Toronto Star. So I don't know if it had that much effect on me, but I guess it must have had some. The truth was, I hated school, and the only subject I liked and was good at was English. So this seems okay. like a, a way to make a living. <laughs> what made you decide uh, on a career in with journalism? Well, you just pretty much answered that. Yeah. But what made you settle in Bloomington to create your magazine? Uh, okay, so... I was, I thought I would never leave New York City. I love New York. I did everything. I subscribed to jazz at Carnegie Hall. I went to the opera. I went to all the new restaurants. You know, I had worked for Murdoch. That was in the 80s. Uh, after that, I worked as a consultant to a lot of publishing companies. And, uh, but my neighborhood in the village changed instead of it being a very warm place with a lot of little funky restaurants and jazz clubs. It suddenly turned into a big tourist attraction. And I really, everybody was young and I was 60, about to be 60. I just really didn't feel like I fit in there anymore. A woman who had been my secretary 25 years before and had a career as a dancer and a actress in New York was thinking of moving back to Bloomington where she had, uh, she was in her fifties now. She had two degrees from IU. And over the years we had stayed really good friends. She kept telling me how great a community Bloomington was. So she came back to have a look. I came for the ride. I was here three days. I fell in love with Bloomington. You know, I love music. Boy, the music school, the opera house here is, is the Mac is as big as uh, 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 the opera, New York City Opera. The uh, stadium is, uh, you know, uh, for footballs like Giant Stadium. The, I love sports. The basketball arena is like Madison Square Garden. It had everything. And of course, it was a lot less expensive than New York. And uh, it just seemed like a good community. I liked the neighborhoods. I liked the near west side. And 
uh, I just thought it was a good community. It wasn't until I went back to New York that I had the idea of doing the magazine. So uh, for the next three months, I did research on city magazines and on Bloomington. And then the day before Halloween in October, I sold my apartment. And the day before Halloween in October of 2005, I packed up my car and drove to Bloomington. A real estate agent put me in a terrible student apartment on Lincoln. There were holes in the windows, mice droppings on the floor, a mattress uh, on the, the uh, on the floor still in its uh, still in its uh, plastic wrap. I write about this actually in the issue that'll be out next week. And uh, I got busy starting a magazine. How difficult was it to get started, and who helped you the most? Uh, the person, the one individual who helped me the most was um, Christine Barber, who at that time, she was a food writer uh, and she was a political science professor. And for years, she'd been writing the food for the Herald Times. When I came to town and started to quietly have a bit of a presence and the HT heard that I was in town, um, they threatened to fire any freelancer who helped me or who would write for Bloom. And Christine Barber, she met with me, she crossed over, decided to give up her gig at the HT on a gamble on a magazine that she had never seen and was someone that she barely knew. And she really helped me a lot. She helped bring, helped me find writers, helped me learn the town. Um, and, you know, this was work. I was working 16, 18 hours a day. But she convinced me she was very active in what was then the slow food movement. And she convinced me to come to a dinner at the uh, at the golf club. You know, I'd never taken a day off, never gone anywhere. And she said, oh, you'll meet some potential advertisers there. Well, as it happened, I met Jenny there, who uh, six months later became my wife. So uh, I, you know, Christine helped me and both in my personal and professional life. And uh, when it came time to go out to try and get advertising, Matt Alano Martin, who you might know, he's a comedian now, but a really good guy. He had worked uh, for the chamber and we just sat down, went through the whole list of the chamber. He told me who he knew and who he was in good standing with. And he made the initial phone call, so I didn't have to make those cold calls. And people were great. I mean, nobody knew me. I didn't have a magazine to show them, but I, have a, I had a beautiful media kit, which talked about what I was going to do in my background. And that was made for me in New York by uh, some really excellent designers. And amazingly, we sold 73 ads in the first issue. Uh, you know, so... That was the beginning. And those are the two people that really, but along the way, there have so many people. And uh, some of them, I know, you know, your sister, uh, Gladys Devane has helped me over the years. Beverly Callender Anderson. Uh, I love Beverly. She's helped me so much to really broaden my, my vision and my knowledge of, of the community. Well, okay. on that note, 
for those who just joined us, we have the pleasure of speaking with Malcolm Abrams. I'm sorry about that. Malcolm Abrams. Uh, he joins us. He is the editor and um, originator of Bloom Magazine. And we're talking to him to determine why was he so driven to start this magazine. And um, he's sharing his passion for uh, the city of Bloomington. And we're just enjoying this conversation. I will say, I want to go back to this Toronto part, uh, Malcolm. Uh, years ago, in 1969, uh, our, our parents took us to Toronto on a trip. And uh, we had the pleasure of dining at this restaurant. It was Toronto, Toronto's first soul food restaurant called the Underground Railroad. It was on 225 East King Street. Wow. And this, uh, I'll, I'll read this to you. Now, some of these things I would dare not eat now. My blood pressure would blow my brain off, <laughs> off whatever. But, okay, get this. Liz will love this. She's a cook. Pig, all right, pig's feet boiled to tender perfection and drenched in mushroom sauce, anime <laughs> salad, a colorful cabbage slaw with apples, pineapples, and nuts tossed with mayonnaise, Casper squash, Mouth-watering barbecue ribs, collard greens, black-eyed peas, a oh, complimentary yeah. basket of cornbread, on and on and on. So the the ambiance in there, when you walk in, they created this restaurant and what they wanted to sort of portray as a cave. So it was darkened, and it had oil lamps hanging from the ceiling, small tables with uh, red and white checkered tablecloths, slow sitting, and then as you walk along this hallway to the facilities, they have hewn out alcoves in there with curtains that they would draw for privacy. So my brother and I are walking down this hallway as little kids, you know, you always make the stop. And we pass by this one, we freeze and back up, sitting at the table, smoking a big cigar, cigar is Bill Cosby. And we talked to him at length, but just about back then it was the Bill Cosby show was Fat Alberts and all that that was out. That was one of the warmest memories. Now it's closed at a 20 year run and the underground rural closed. But when you spoke of the black community in Toronto, um, it was started by a, a, a black gentleman who played with the Toronto Argonauts and they started the underground railroad. And who so maybe that's- who, Wait a minute, who was the player? Was it Dave Mann? Uh, the player was, as my cell phone just died on me, uh, the player was, and I'll get to that, it was started by uh, Railroad First. It was started by Georgia native John Henry Jackson. He came to Toronto in 1960. He became the quarterback of the Toronto Argonauts. Mm -hmm. So Georgia native John Henry Jackson uh, started that. Now, I, I just said all that because whenever I hear Toronto these days, that throws me back to a time uh, when eight tracks ruled, right? right. <laughs> this, was, this was back then. Wow, but, you uh, gave me a really interesting piece of history about the city, I have to tell you. I was a big Toronto Argonaut fan. I Believe it or not, I was a pretty good football player. And, uh, uh, yeah, boy, I, I don't remember him, but I don't remember a lot of things. But I didn't well, know. I'll send you. I'll send you a link to that. And um, uh, as I'm as I'm reading it now, my mouth still waters. But I'm like, wow, boy, those are some times. 
Yeah. I had a question, a follow-up question, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Liz, but um, you stated that it was your love of Bloomington that was the primary catalyst for Bloom. And you began to sort of describe that. Was it that we were such a welcoming community or you were so fascinated with Bloomington? On Bloomington in the fall, no one can be. The color, the foliage, just mm -hmm. the atmosphere. What was it about Bloomington that helped you launch Bloom? Well, actually, I came in May. On that first okay. visit, I came in May. Then I came back in October. Uh, I, what I liked was I had worked in smaller places when I started my career in newspapers. What I liked, I thought it was a good size. I thought it was not a commuter city. In other words, this wasn't a pet place where people lived and then worked in Indianapolis. I love sports. I love music. I love eating. And that I saw, uh, you know, all these ethnic restaurants. So that that was really good. And I saw that the downtown was not filled with big chain stores, that it looked like it had grown, uh, you know, gradually, and that it was real. It wasn't something that a developer came in and made. And then in the few days I was here, I met a lot of nice people. Everybody was talking up Bloomington. <laughs> Everybody, you know, in some ways it's a, a little bit like New York. So many people are here, came here. I almost feel when I meet somebody, I say, where are you from? You know, it's the same thing in New York. So, you know, people had come here from all different places. They'd gone to IU, they moved away. 20 years later, they come back here. 40 years later, they come back here to retire. Everybody had great things to say about it. I also saw some diversity. I was a little disappointed in that. I got to tell you, actually, when I first came here. But, you know, I want to be someplace where there's some ethnicity. You know, there's some culture. You know, uh, you know I've said this before, and I've written it too. You know, what makes this a really special country is... We all have something in common. You know, we all want good schools for our kids. We all want to be support our family. We want to be good citizens, right? But it's the differences that make it a special country. It's not the sameness. It's the differences that make it special. And, you know, there's only two or three other countries in the world who have the kind of diversity that we have here. And, you know, that's... To me, that's what makes this a special country. And to be in a place that wouldn't have that, I, I, I don't think I would enjoy it or necessarily even feel comfortable in it. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. I'd like to know, what was your most rewarding story that you published in Bloom Magazine? My God. Uh, <laughs> Liz, you know, some people said we did a story on people in recovery who are recovering alcoholics or using drugs. And I got some kind of a little bit of nasty feedback from that story from some people because, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is based well, on being anonymous, you know, and here were people who were talking about it. And some people have been clean for 30 years and some people have been clean for six months but they were talking about the struggle and how it changed their life to overcome. Uh, I remember someone who I like and respect very much sent us a letter saying it was the most, one of the most important things that had happened in Bloomington. But I have a lot of other stories 
was the question? Favorite stories or what was it? Favorite well, what any story that, that you feel personally is rewarding. Okay, I'll tell you stories that I love, you know. And okay. I think that you connect to. I talk about this all the time because I just love this story. We did a story. It was called uh, Bloomington's uh, 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 Grand Doms. You know, I saw a thing in the HT one day, a very small thing, that Violetta Verde, the ballerina, who was from France, had just received this huge honor from the president of France, the highest honor. And about a few weeks later, I see that um, Camila Williams is getting two big honors in New York. She's getting an honor from New York City Opera, and she's getting an honor for, I think it's called the Schomburg Library in Harlem. And these were like two little stories. And, you know, I was just amazed. You mean these people are in Bloomington? And so we did this story where we interviewed them both. And they were both the most charming, fabulous women. But what was really fun was when we went to do the cover shoot and we got the two of them together. And although they both taught in the uh, music school, they rarely saw one another. And so we got them together and it was like, Violette would go, oh, you're Camilla, you're so beautiful. And Camilla would say, no, 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 you're more beautiful. And uh, <laughs> Camilla would say, you're so talented. You know, these are women already, you know, they're 70, 80 years old. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you're more talented. And then I thought it was the kicker was Camilla said to Violet, oh, with tears, really, I feel so, you know, that you had to grow up in the segregated South. Um, I think Camilla was from uh, Virginia. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so Camilla says, oh, but you poor thing, you grew up in France during the Nazi occupation. And the two of them are sitting there side by side, tears running down their face, feeling so sad for the other one. I mean, I'll tell you, I wish we would have had, you know, a video of this. It was amazing. They just loved each other and admired each other. And that to me was one of my favorite moments and one of my favorite all time stories. Uh, you know, another one which just really shocked me, I was at a party and a man comes up and he's a pianist at the music school that sort of accompanies people. And he tells me that there's a conducting teacher there named Arthur Fagan, whose parents were saved by Schindler. They were on Schindler's List. And not only that, but the parents were in the movie Schindler's List. If you saw the movie, which is in black and white, at the end of the movie, it shows some of the people he saved coming and putting stones on his gravesite, uh, you know, which you do when you visit a grave of a, a Jewish person. His parents were two of those people. And we were able to talk to his parents. They lived in Florida. You know, we put his whole family on his, on the cover because none of those people they, who live in Bloomington, none of them would have been alive if it hadn't been for Schindler. And terrific pictures. We had a picture of Schindler in the early 50s 
visiting Arthur's parents on Long Island. <laughs> you know, I mean, a few years after the war and that horror, now they're in a backyard barbecue in Long Island. Of course, Schindler's smoking a cigarette, you know, the way they do in Europe. And uh, and so that was an incredible story. Some of the wow. other really, the Duaney family. My <laughs> God, what a story. There were so many facets outside of the sons being great basketball players. But, you know, just in the examples that I've given you, I always like stories that are local stories, but really they're national stories or international mm -hmm. stories. And the fact that uh, the mother, Julia, Julia Duaney, mm -hmm. was the undersecretary to the new parliament at the newest nation on earth when South Sudan became a separate nation. And, and her husband, I, Drew, I, I can't remember, Well, Well, I think was his name, you know, he had been the head of this revolutionary uh, body that, you know, fought to have South Sudan, you know, separate. And, you know, that was just, ooh, that was an amazing story. In fact, one of my problems is that I spend way too much money on the editorial. And uh, I wanted Julia a picture. She was back in South Sudan. I wanted to get a picture of her in South Sudan. And during the independence and all the photographers had sort of left because that whole ceremony and everything. And so uh, finally, I got hold with National Geographic in London, who had a photographer there. And I got hold of him in South Sudan to get a picture of Julia which cost me a small fortune. And, you know, like, like one of my, you know, somebody who worked here said, nobody would have criticized you if we didn't have that picture. But, uh, you know, it was great to get. And sometime later, I don't know, a year or two later, there was a knock on the office door and Julia came into the office at Bloom. And yeah, so, you know, that, that was, uh, uh, a great moment uh, for us, you know. Oh, and, yeah. You know, other stories when we did to be a Muslim in Bloomington. Yeah. I thought that was, you know, at a time where there was a little antagonism, you like, against Muslims. And a story that we did on uh, people in Bloomington who were asylum seekers living here. We couldn't show their pictures because they still had families back in Venezuela and other places. So, you know, those stories that are really national or world stories and Bloomington, you know, is part of those stories and, and in some ways has played, you know, kind of important parts. So, um, you know, those are some of my, uh, some of my really favorite stories. Even when we did, you know, the, we did a story years ago, Gay Bloomington, then and now. Yeah. And we had a group of gay people who were willing to be on the cover. And we talked about it. And I know I lost a big advertiser over that story, uh, if you can believe, in the 21st century. Uh, but to me, these were important stories. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have the writers and the photographers, you know, who were able to do justice to, uh, to some of these stories. Well, you know, Malcolm, uh, that's... Several... Oh, oh, I was just going to say, Liz... Uh, a couple of years back, you and I, Liz, had the opportunity to talk to a gentleman uh, who's done research on Blacks and Nazi concentration camps. Yes. And that was one of the most riveting uh, 
interviews where we did the research, there were photos, uh, there was even a movie uh, that was uh, produced by an international uh, director. And this gentleman, you know, we had to time it to call him overseas. And with the technology, you know, there were some helpful productive things, if you will. I mean, that's that's a stretch, but that came from the pandemic. Here we are on the Zoom technology. Uh, and this was one of the reasons we weren't in the studio during that time. So it was easy to call people long distance and they were more amenable to get on. And that was one of the most uh, riveting interviews. And you talk about Schindler, that that just tears at your heart. Um, but I, I'm so glad that that you would publish such a story. Um, Absolutely. You know, you say, for instance, losing a, um, you know, there's someone to underwrite or support your endeavor, but you went ahead and said, no, this is important. And you did it. Well, I never know what I'm going to lose before I do it. <laughs> uh, Otherwise, you wouldn't do it, maybe. I don't know. Well, I know. The temptation's yeah. there, you know? I don't know. Still do it. I would still yeah. do it. Yeah. Good. Good. You know, what, what the, the most negative feedback I get are about my editor's messages where I have attacked our members of Congress for being cowards and, uh, and that's, and other uh, things I've said or written about the uh, previous administration and, uh, and racism. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I consider you a man's man. And I appreciate every issue because through your magazine, I meet people that I didn't know were here in Bloomington. And you talked about Camilla. I absolutely loved her. She was a beautiful person. I miss her. She used to say, my girl. Where's my girl, Liz? And I miss that. And I miss her. So I know what you're saying. Just, oh, I would have loved to see the two of you together. Boy, oh, we, yeah, she was. It would have been a quiet wonderful. moment, yes. No. <laughs> we, we loved each other. I, I yeah, miss yeah. her. I uh, and talking about, since we talked about the stories you liked and your rewarding stories, is there an article or a story that you wished you had not published Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I will say this. There are some stories that weren't done as well as they could have been. Okay. And so that I have some regret that I wish we could have done a better job. So that I regret. And I actually can't name any offhand. Okay. Uh, but we certainly, you know, it was really hard finding good writers in Bloomington. I thought mm. because at that time there was a journalism school here and everything. Uh, but, you know, kids coming out of journalism school aren't ready yeah. to write for us. You know, I, I need experienced people. I, you know, when I was in New York and I oversaw publications, I've had people, I would have kids come from NYU, you know, wanting jobs. And I would tell them, go work in a small newspaper or magazine somewhere. You know, when you've written three or 400 stories, come back. You know, learn from editors, come back. You know, we have a very small staff at Bloom. There's really three and a half of us. And to work with people that really aren't there yet 
takes us a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. Uh, you know, we want really good writing. And so there have been times where I haven't had that. I also thought that there would be spouses of professors, you know, who maybe had worked in the magazine industry somewhere. Well, there was one. But so it it's uh, at times has been a struggle. Right now, I have the best group of writers I've ever had. And so we're able to do the big feature stories. Carmen Searing, who you know, who I'll mention. Yes, yes she's you know, that's, that's a big time writer. You know, she could go work for the New York Times. Uh, yeah. you know, I've got a few that are really first rate, but it always hasn't been. Boy, I've had some periods where, you know, there have been good stories out there for the picking. I haven't had anybody to write them. I will take this opportunity. If there are writers out there who are interested in writing for Blue, to write for us, you need to send a brief bio and samples, or we call them clips, of your published works. If you haven't published, it, it, we can't. But if you've been published, and if even if you're a terrific writer, if you haven't been writing journalism, it's different. And, uh, you know, contact me. My email address is editor at magbloom.com. And I am always on the lookout for good writers, but you must have some real life experience. All right. Well, wanna... Go ahead. I was going to take this opportunity real quickly to jump in with ideas we are in the final stretch of this interview, we want to just say that we are having a, a delightful, wonderful uh, conversation with Malcolm Abrams, who's editor and publisher of Blue Magazine. Uh, he's sharing his passion, uh, number one, as to why he published, or why he created Bloom, and why he is driven to showcase the diversity and richness that is Bloomington. And again, I want to say that uh, Bloom is publishing, as I understand, its 100th issue in this month of February. And Bloom is free and can also be virtually read at magbloom.com. All right, you talked about your- um, Let me interrupt for just one minute because you mentioned the 100th edition. I should mention who's on the cover of our 100th edition. And I, want, I just want to thank you for putting me on that cover, Malcolm. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Well- thank you. The, check, you know, the check is in the mail. I spoke to Liz and I said, should I put Clarence on the cover? And Liz said, no, put me on the cover. <laughs> so, uh, Liz and Gladys Devane are on the cover. It, the magazine will be out on Tuesday. All the right. cover line is telling it the way it was. And right. uh, so that's what we chose for the cover of our 100th edition. And so, to be clear, on February the 7th, this will hit the stands free of charge. And if you see Liz or Gladys, stop with your Blue Magazine and have them uh, sign that magazine because it's a keepsake. Now, I, I just want to finish this one this one question because Liz Liz has some some burning questions. But you know, you you mentioned your 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 staff and top rate um, just really intuitive season staff. Um, describe for us how 
a brainstorming ideation meeting goes at Bloom? Uh, do, do people come in and throw the football around? Do they do they doodle as they're throwing out their pitching ideas? What's what's it like? Just just tell us. I mean, you don't put a bottle of bourbon on the table. I know that, but but tell us what's it like for brainstorming, or maybe you do. I don't know. But what is it like to brainstorm for Bloom? Well, you know, there's so few of us. We don't really need to call a meeting. You know, we're there <laughs> together you know, most of the time. But, you know, we get our stories idea. We we give freelance work, I think, the last count, about 33 freelance writers, photographers, and designers. And they are our eyes and ears in the community. We also have an advisory board, in which uh, Gladys uh, has sat on. And we get ideas from our advisory board, although we only meet with them once or twice a year, but they keep an eye, of course. And, you know, I am looking all, all day, every day for stories, people I meet. You know, I just, I've been in this business for 50 years, over 50 years. I, I sort of have a radar. That's what I'm thinking about all the time. And readers send in ideas. People stop me all the time. And the words are, you should do a story on. And then they pitch a story about their son. They pitch a story about their club. They pitch a story about a friend. They pitch. And 50% of the time, they're good stories. I, I have to tell you, I was once followed into the bathroom. I was standing <laughs> at the urinal. And I had somebody over my right shoulder pitching me a story. It was me. At least, at least it, was, no, it wasn't you, Liz. <laughs> At least it was a minute. But I got to tell you, I have been pitched to stories everywhere. And half the time they are. They're good stories, just like the one I told you about Schindler's List. That was somebody I didn't know. And uh, so we get them from everywhere. And sometimes I'll see the HT and I'll see, you know, like I said, they're doing a story. Eh, that story's bigger than that and more important than that. And uh you know, so we get them everywhere. We we don't ever really just sit down and kick stuff around, but we're doing it all the time. And as I get older, I'm 77 now. I was 60 when I came. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, a lot of times they'll say, oh, are we doing that? And I'll say, where did that come from? I didn't know about that. And they'll say, are you kidding? That was your idea. You made <laughs> I have no memory. And, and I don't know whether they're playing me or, you know, or, or I really did say this was okay. Uh, yeah, so, uh, but we're talking about stuff and stories all day long, you know. And uh, I just have two fabulous people, Cassandra Husky and uh, Rodney Magus, uh, Margus. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Rodney's also a terrific photographer. And, I, you know, at this point, I couldn't get anywhere near doing them i'm so appreciative of them because you know i used to work 60 70 hours a week i can't do that anymore in fact i have a couch in here and i would say at least once or twice a week i call it i tell them i'm going to meditate you know i go like this but you know then i come out of here an hour later and i got nap hair you know all over the place. <laughs> so they know what i'm doing in here it's not a big secret and you know cassandra has just taken over so much of the hard work and Rodney, everything goes to him first before it comes to me, uh, editorial wise, he deals with everybody. And uh, so, you know, I love doing this work and I love the magazine and I couldn't do it without these people anymore. 
Yeah. Oh, I love the magazine and so many people do. And I look forward to every issue because I go, oh, I didn't know a person like that was here. I got to contact them or, oh, I didn't know that they had a restaurant like that. I mean, it lets me know what's going on in my community. And I wouldn't right, know right. about that. So you got to stay around. You can't uh, go uh, anywhere. Well, I am never retiring. Okay. Okay. So, That's good. I'm, That's I'm good. hoping to do another 100. I, All right. I'll be 117 when that happens. But <laughs> we're the kind of piggyback you, on you what, doing what you're doing. Liz gives me lots of ideas for the magazine, as you can imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I try to because I'm just, uh, you know, I'm passionate about what I do. I know and, you. Yeah. Uh, so what inspires you and what motivates you every day? Uh, well, what inspires me? You know, I, I love doing the work. Okay. So it's not hard to come to work. I love it. And the fact that I have good colleagues, I always—I I have to tell you, I haven't always had good colleagues here. You know, it's really been a process finding the people who are passionate about what they do, are passionate about the community, are very smart and very talented. And so it's a joy to come to work and work with these people. Um, you know, I love this community. It's so rare that you ever find anybody in Bloomington who doesn't love this community. And so that motivates me. And, um, you know, the what we wanted to do when I started the magazine was to support local business, support non support charities, support the arts. And after I was here a little bit, support diversity, because I felt diversity needed a little a little help. And. Yeah. You know, those are the things that I love about Bloomington. And those are the things I want to support. And, you know, I like to think the magazine is making a difference, that it's a positive thing. And I have to tell you, it's so gratifying. Everybody, you know, I'm introduced to, honestly, in almost every case, the first thing they say is, I love your magazine. I get so much positive feedback. You know, it's better than the money. And uh, it's the best thing I've done in my career. And it makes up for a lot of the lousy things I did when I was younger. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's what motivates me. We, we have about, uh, about four minutes left. And I want to reserve this time uh, for you not only to share any stories that we've not touched on, but also... Um, Here's a, here's an opportunity for you to sort of uh, sort of boast on your your good efforts and the, the efforts of your team. How many awards and what type of awards have you won? Oh, we've won from journalism. Oh, I don't know, well over a hundred awards from the Society of Professional Journalists. We have a whole wall here with plaques. Uh, we've won more awards than any magazine in Indiana. Uh, and, you know, we've won awards, you know, for best editorials where we're competing against not just other magazines, we're competing against all the newspapers. And, you know, we only come out six times a year. We've also won many awards from the community, from the chamber, 
from downtown business. And, you know, we really, uh, we, we really cherish those, but of course that's not the reason we do this, you know, right. we do it because we love it. We yeah. love the work and, you know, I love good writing. I love good photography. I love good design. And then there's that wonderful gratification when the magazine actually, you have it in your hands, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, but, we, you know, we have received a lot of awards. I got an award a few years ago from the Society of Professional Journalists. Sort of, uh, I think it's, uh, I could run, look, see what it says, but I think it's <laughs> a contribution to quality journalism in the state of Indiana. Excellent. So, well, I, I, I want to, with a couple minutes left, um, ask if, 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 if you could share this technical secret with us, and it may not be a secret, but do you write a story uh, to tell the complete story, just just to share it as it is, or do you write a story to uh, challenge and provoke action after the readers read it? I would say that again. <laughs> do you write a story right. that uh, just shares the story, just chronologically, factually, and that's right. it, and you just present it to the reader, or do you write a story that will motivate, provoke, challenge the reader to take action on something that you're writing about. I, I have to be honest with, I don't consciously think about that effect, that it can have that effect. But, you know, I hope that some of our stories do. Um, you know, I like to have, I'm a very old school. I started working my first newspaper when I was 22 years old or 21 years old. So that's most of what I've done in my life. And it may be sort of old school, but I want a very definite separation between editorial and advertising. And I also don't want my writers, except for the columnists who are experts, my writers injecting anything subjective. So a writer, a new writer, we tell them, you can't use the word beautiful even to describe something. You can describe it and let the reader decide if it's beautiful, or you can get an expert in beauty to say whether it's beautiful, but you can't. So we can't overtly encourage people to take action. What we can do is tell a straight story. You know, this is factual. What we try to do in the community, we don't publish press releases. We don't promote anything. And amongst young writers, there's this real idea that whatever you write about, whether it's a store or a pro, that you've got to promote it in the story. I don't want that. And believe me, I scratch out everything that's subjective. We tell it straight. We put a mirror up to this community and let the people who read it decide for themselves. So I, so I would say that we're not in the stories themselves encouraging people we put it for them there. And that decision without any prompting from us is up to them. We give them the facts. Thank you, um, Malcolm. Thank you. And wonderful answer to that. Liz, why don't you go ahead and take us home? Well, what I have, Malcolm, you've done a beautiful job with answering questions. I, the best. Uh, do you feel that you connect people through your magazine? I'm not sure what you mean by connect one to the other or. Or, or, you know, like I had mentioned before, I'm introduced to people I don't know about. 
So is that a purpose? You're introducing us. You're connecting us. Hey, I will say this, that I purposely have a lot of people pictures in the magazine. So even if we do something about a store, like we just did a story on a new children's store, the new toy store. We show the owner of the store, you know? Mm -hmm. We like people. That's what makes up a community. Also, you know, I think when people read the magazine, they say, oh, you know, that's my dry cleaner there. <laughs> or I, I know that. I saw him make a speech or something. I think it connects people. I hope it connects people to the community that says, I'm part of this community with these people. I know some of these people and I'm getting to know, you know, some other people. So I don't think person to person, but I hope that we make people feel like we are part of this. And I think you do, and you do a good job at it. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Clarence? You want to wind our up thanks. We're going to wind up here with uh, saying our thanks to Malcolm Abrams, editor and publisher of Bloom Magazine. He carved out some time to discuss his passion uh, behind Bloom and why he's driven. And in a very sincere way to showcase the diversity and richness and the stories that comprise Bloomington, Indiana. Bloom is publishing its 100th issue featuring my co-anchor and Gladys Devane on the front cover. Um, and I'm going to get a magazine and let these two ladies sign it. And Bloom is free and also can be virtually read at magbloom.com. Again, and our thanks to, to Malcolm. We really appreciate you, Malcolm. Um, uh, it, it was just wonderful talking to you. Um, Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Our assistant produ producer is me, Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB news director is Cade Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontante. Original theme music created by Jamel Ephraim with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.